On the evening of July 4th, 1849, a group of California-bound Texans were staying overnight in the settlement of Santa Cruz, located near the headwaters of the river of the same name, just south of the current international border. They had arrived the previous day and had been warmly greeted by the inhabitants and entertained with a dancing of the fandango by the locals, which was customary when hosting new guests. However, a disagreement had suddenly erupted between Santa Cruz's alcalde and these Yankees, or Yankees, as the Mexicans called them. You see, the Texans had managed to run off a small group of Apaches and corral some stolen cattle the Amerindians left behind. Mexican law required them to put the cattle into a public corral in Santa Cruz so the rightful owners could claim the animals and pay a small amount per head to the men who had rescued them. However, the Texans refused to surrender the animals under such terms. So the alcalde immediately declared that no one in town could give these guests any more beef, and they definitely couldn't treat them to any more dances. Angered by all this, the Yankees wrote up a defiant message and had it translated into Spanish. It was delivered to the alcalde, who they also threatened with a bowie knife just for a good measure. Then, like in some 1840s version of Footloose, the men proceeded to break into a house where most of the young women were locked up and decided to throw a dance for themselves. Local garrison officers rushed in to put a stop to this, but had to back away at the sight of the now very angry Texans, each armed with pistols. Finally, the next morning, when some sympathetic Mexicans decided to treat them to a butchered cow despite the orders, the Texans took the opportunity to throw the entrails into the alcalde's home. Now, this was just one particularly rambunctious group. But they were also a sign of the times, as more and more Yankees came passing through Sonora and southern Arizona en route to the promised land of California. So now, in addition to all the other problems Tucson, Tubac, and other Mexican settlements had been dealing with for years now, they had to figure out how to deal with their new, oft-times aggressive neighbors. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 23, The Yankees Are Coming. Like much from this period, we do not have anything that tells us when those living in Upper Sonora were informed about the end of the war. We also do not know how they felt about the fact that all of California Alta, New Mexico, and everything north of the Gila River had been gifted to the United States. Or the fact that Americans had been arming the Apaches for years now so they could buy horses and mules stolen from Mexicans, something that was certain to increase now that the United States was so much closer. But there was little time to dwell on such matters, as all the old problems were very much alive and well at this point. You see, Tucson was starving. With the Yankees in control of the port of Guaymas, the Department of Sonora was now without any income from taxes on imports and exports. Beginning in February 1848, Sonora had to suspend the bi-monthly wheat ration previously provided to soldiers. 
By mid-spring, this was causing some very lean times in Tucson, and for many of the soldiers, it was the last straw. Always short on weapons, mounts, and now food, they rebelled, stating that they would not do an iota more of military duty. Captain Jose Antonio Comadaran actually hightailed it out of his post and rode to Uris to report of this turn of events. While he was out, Tucson citizens organized a small party to head to the abandoned Babocomari Ranch along the San Pedro to round up some wild cattle there. This party, at least 15 strong, rode to a watering place in the Whetstone Mountains, the range just west of current State Route 90. However, remember that the ranch had been abandoned for a reason. On May 10th, this group was ambushed by Apaches and slaughtered to a man. It would be months before the bodies could be recovered. Captain Comodaran eventually returned to the Presidio and the soldiers gave up their rebellion, but I honestly don't have a good source on what, if anything, the commander had to promise. It's likely that leading Tucson citizen Teodoro Ramirez once again donated food to help keep the soldiers and their families fed, something he had done on at least two previous occasions. Toward the end of 1848, Tucson would again be visited by a party of U.S. soldiers, making their way from Monterey, Mexico to Los Angeles. Under the command of a surly and often intoxicated Major Lawrence P. Graham, this company would leave us detailed descriptions of the Santa Cruz Valley area, mostly thanks to Lieutenant Cave Johnson Coots. The company marched along the current U.S. border, seeing the San Bernardino Ranch, Agua Prieta, and the upper San Pedro River, before skirting around the southern end of the Huachuca Mountains. After reaching Santa Cruz, they then headed up north toward Tucson in late October 1848. As the company passed the old mission at Guivavi, they were surprised by a group of Mexican miners. As Coots learned, mining here was only done in short legs, never more than two weeks at a time, for fear of attracting Apache attention. He describes Tumacacri and Tubac as nice, quote, Indian villages, saying that at the latter, there were two or more Apache Mansos for every Mexican living there. Of San Javier del Bac, he wrote that the church was, quote, the finest in Sonora, end quote. And as part of the growing myth of Spanish prosperity in the region, he also wrote that the abandoned parts of the mission suggested, quote, a city with many churches and other large and fine buildings, end quote. The entire company was disappointed to find that Tucson was not some large, thriving metropolis, which apparently they all expected it to be. Coots wrote, quote, The big place, the second Chihuahua, is no great deal after all. End quote. Much like the Mormon battalion two years previous, Graham and his men were well received by the inhabitants of Tucson, though the Yankee commander didn't exactly return the favor. Comandaran went to call upon Graham the morning after their arrival, but found the man had gotten drunk already and wandered into town. The captain waited most of the day for Graham to return, but a chilling rain started falling and finally, after hours of freezing, he returned to the Presidio proper. We do get some insights from this company. As Coots notes a good number of donkey-powered gristmills, 
he says there was one to every house, that were constantly grinding wheat into flour. We also learn that El Pueblito was apparently abandoned at this point. Coots calls it, quote, a complete dog town covered with old broken earthenware, end quote. Graham's company did not stay for more than a day before heading north again. They would make their way to the Gila River and then over to its confluence with the Colorado. Coot's record does recount passing the now famous ruins at Casa Grande and being received warmly by the Pima and the Maricopa. The places that Graham's company and the subsequent influx of Yankee pioneers would find in southern Arizona all seem to be on the brink of desolation. From Coots, we learned that Mexican families living in Tubac were probably less than a dozen, and that Tumacacri was solely populated by Amerindians. Official reports for Sonora show that across the entire state, Apache attacks had caused the abandonment of 26 mining camps, 30 haciendas, and 90 ranches. And we know of at least two other towns that had been sacked and burned, but were not listed on that report. All the evidence suggests that at this point, the population of the Sonoran frontier that were of European extraction was less than 1,000 people. Even Manuel Maria Gandra, enjoying his stint as governor of Sonora, lamented, quote, All is misery, and the government finds itself lacking even the capacity to make use of the available resources to ward off the most serious ills, end quote. Comodoran could definitely relate to that all-is-misery part. Things were peaceful enough when Graham's men marched through the city, but the Norteamericanos didn't know that just a few days beforehand, the soldiers had presented the Presidio captain with an ultimatum. Sick of not having, well, anything, they went on strike for the second time that year. A delegation was even sent to Gandra to demand something to be done. The governor, at a loss for what to do, promised to order Comodaran to relieve them of military duties so they could hold jobs that would, you know, actually pay them. This group returned to Tucson with this news and told the captain to do just that. Of course, Comodaran had only the word of these disgruntled men, so he insisted that he could do no such thing until an actual order arrived. Eventually, a compromise was reached, where the men would not abandon the Presidio, but would only be asked to do guard duty. Taking the field to battle the Apaches was out of the question. This agreement sounded good until December 9th, when news came up that the Apaches had attacked Tubac, killing several soldiers and civilians there. Since he could not call upon the actual soldiers... Comodoran called upon 12 civilian volunteers to muster a rescue mission. However, this took too long, and by the time the rescue got to Tubac, they found it had been abandoned. All they could do was document the destruction. We get a report from Comodoran shortly afterward, where he records that the soldiers from Tubac were now living at Tucson or San Javier del Bac to live off what few rations the Presidio could provide. 1849 started off with a new twist for Tucson. After nearly three quarters of a century, it would no longer be a presidio. 
Instead, it was now designated as, quote, a military colony. Full confession, I don't really know what the technical difference between the two is, but a military colony seems to somehow be more inviting for expansion and settlement. It also has something to do with what land the military has and what land the civilians have. It's actually really complicated. But the change had been decreed for many places along the Sonoran frontier several months earlier by Mexican President José Joaquín Herrera and his advisors to promote settlement and counteract the potential for the U.S. to view the land as mostly vacant and therefore vulnerable. For sharp-eared listeners out there, yes, this is the same José Joaquín Herrera who was forced to give up the presidency back in 1845. As a fun aside, as far as I can determine, with this term in office, Herrera will become only the second person since Mexico's independence to finish his full term and hand it off to a legally elected successor. Those living in these new military colonies greeted the news with a fair bit of apprehension, understandably incredulous at the government's ability to pump enough money into the project to really encourage settlement and provide protection. The first bit of the decree didn't really help assuage any fears, as it stated that the military colonies would be funded at the same level that an 1826 law gave the Presidial Companies. And lest we forget, the Apaches keep coming and coming, knocking everyone around and causing wholesale abandonment of lesser settlements. Due to all this damage, on February 3, 1849, acting governor Juan Gandra, brother of Manuel Maria Gandra, sent a scathing letter to José María Elias González about recent damages done to settlements in January. In this letter, the governor said that 85 people had been killed in a two-week period, not counting the nine just slain in Tubac. He also said that unless Elias Gonzalez put a force of 600 to 700 men in the field, like right now, more settlements across the northern frontier would have to be abandoned. The old military commander for Sonora, he was now in his mid-50s at this point and had been fighting pretty much his entire adult life, quite simply lost his cool. He wrote back to the governor with decades worth of indignation and basically said, well, duh, if I had 600 to 700 men, I could have done a lot of things. Elise Gonzalez described how Gondra's brother had done nothing but put obstacles in his way to keep him from putting an effective force in the field and that the state of the Presidios was due to government neglect. He wrote, quote, if your predecessor and brother, with all his prestige, power, and resources could not remedy these evils, how do you expect me to do it in two months with no means whatsoever? End quote. The letter finishes with Elise Gonzalez challenging the governor to give him some resources, and then he would see what the military commander was capable of. Though not specifically outlined in this exchange, something Elias Gonzalez was certainly aware of was that defending the frontier was becoming more and more impossible due to the lack of fighting men, because suddenly everyone wanted to get to California. I'm not sure if you know this or not, but in January 1848, 
Some people building a sawmill for one John Sutter on the American River found some shiny flakes in the riverbed and set off a massive migration west. The East Coast first received news of this gold in August 1848, but things really got a shot in the arm when President Polk mentioned it during his annual message to Congress in December, saying the mines in California were even more valuable than previously assumed and that the abundance of gold, quote, would scarcely command belief, end quote. Thus, the great California gold rush began. This find, as well as one in Australia three years later, revolutionized world economies by injecting mass amounts of capital and shoring up paper money with gold backing. The value of gold mined in the U.S. skyrocketed from 889000 in 1847 to $15 million in 1850. And with it came Yankees. Lots and lots of Yankees. It's estimated that some 20,000 of these westward-plotting Argonauts plowed through the southern route to California. But it's not only Yankees who are scrambling after gold. Between late 1848 and early 1849, at least 5,000 people in Sonora also took off to try and strike it rich. And the ones that made their way back with some money in their pockets set off the fevered dreams of the rest. Seriously, people abandoning their hot, harsh, and Apache-infested homelands in Sonora for California became a serious problem. Now, the Southern Route, as it was called, was a variety of different roads that converged at the Colorado River at the site of present-day Yuma. One way was Cook's Wagon Road, coming down from Santa Fe, dipping into present-day Mexico, then heading back up the San Pedro River before striking west to Tucson. Another route, known as the Gila Trail, started further east, dipping down into Mexico at Paso del Norte, known to us now as El Paso, swinging by the settlements at Janos before briefly meeting with Cook's Road at the old San Bernardino Ranch. This route, however, continued west to the settlement of Santa Cruz before heading north to pass to McCockery, Tubac, and Tucson. So, look out, Tucson. You have Yankees incoming. The first known citizen group to reach Tucson did so in March 1849 under the leadership of John C. Fremont. Fremont's an interesting guy and will one day be named Territorial Governor of Arizona, not to mention the Republican Party's first presidential nominee in 1856. He had been a mountain man slash explorer in the 1840s and earned the nickname The Pathfinder. In the months leading up to the Mexican-American War, he was in California and became part of the Bear Flag Revolt, which briefly declared the independence of California. Fremont, by then a major in the U.S. Army, was installed as interim military governor for California in early 1847. However, due to some cross-communication wires and confusion about authority that is way too complicated for us to get into, he was actually court-martialed on charges of mutiny and insubordination. President Polk would intercede personally to commute Fremont's dishonorable discharge and restore his rank. Fremont, however, went ahead and resigned from the army anyway and went back to exploring. Unfortunately for us, however, Fremont didn't really leave any notes of his impression of Mexican Arizona 
aside from mentioning seeing peach trees in bloom somewhere in the Santa Cruz River Valley. We start to see here the traffic on the trail picking up rapidly, as many journal entries record individual companies being just a few days ahead of or behind others, or of meeting other companies en route. The consequence of which is we get a slew of first impressions to Tucson and the surrounding areas as Yankees begin pouring through. For example, we learned from two different companies that Sonora was apparently not yet on the gold standard, as the natives and Mexicans would shun gold coins, but happily accepted silver ones. This will obviously change once the gold strikes really take off. They also note that there was no resident priest in the area, and that services were administered by a maestro, or lay priest. It's probably the same lay priest they mentioned down at Santa Cruz who was also providing services up in Tucson. We also find record of the Tucson Ring meteorite, then being used as an anvil by the local blacksmith. This meteorite, described as being 3 to 4 feet long and estimated by the observer to be around 2,000 pounds, now resides in the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. We also get plenty of other reports about Tubac, Tumacacri, and other settlements in northern Sonora being completely empty at this point. Finally, the Yankees were not very much impressed with the settlements they did encounter. A newspaper reporter traveling with a company from New Orleans described Tucson as, quote, a miserable old place garrisoned by about 100 men, end quote. He also described the Apache Mansos as, quote, unequivocally a miserable, degraded set, end quote. A party passing through in late 1849 is one of the only ones to have anything good to say about Tucson, with a chronicler noting that it was better laid out than any city he had seen since Santa Fe. The American contempt extended to the Mexicans for not doing more to civilize the area. Quote, There is everything here to make a country life delightful, one commenter from Illinois wrote. And yet the imbecile Mexicans permit a few Apaches to drive them out of as beautiful a country as heaven ever smiled on. End quote. Another American, remarking on the abandonment of Tubac and Tumacacri, wrote, quote, It must be a miserable race that could deliver up such a valley with its delightful climate. End quote. The Yankees also began to weave together a negative stereotype of the soldiers. One reports that a mule driver, when asked what the Mexicans do with their guns and lances, replied, quote, When they see the Indians coming, they throw them down and run like hell. End quote. Of the soldiers in Tucson, another American said, quote, There is a band of organized troops stationed here. The soldiers make a contemptible appearance, lounging about their quarters. Their pay is the promise of three bushels of wheat and a small sum of money per month. The wheat they get, the money they do not. They, however, receive more than their services are worth. End quote. I don't know about you, but after everything we talked about over the last several episodes, I just want to reach out and slap these guys. One of the reasons they may have had such contempt is that they never had to deal really with the Apaches. Through much of 1849, the Apaches refrained from raiding the American wagons coming through. The one notable exception is from June of that year, 
when the troublesome Texans we talked about at the beginning of today's episode walked into an ambush east of Janos set by none other than Mangas Coloradas. A short skirmish ensued, but eventually Coloradas called for a parley. While talking with the party, Coloradas expressed his love for the Americans and said that he hoped they would help him drive out the Mexicans, which he labeled Cristianos Malditos, or evil Christians. Coloradas had a right to be angry. Just a couple years beforehand, in 1846, the Apache had been subject to a horrible atrocity. Infamous scalp hunter James Kirker, whom we discussed back in episode 18, had invited Cherokee and Apache to a feast near Galeana in northwest Chihuahua. As Coloradas told it, Kirker and the others got the Apaches drunk and then, while the natives slept, crept in and beat more than 130 men, women, and children to death with clubs. As Kirker was in the employ of the state of Chihuahua, the Apaches naturally blame the Cristianos Maditos. But believe me when I say that it won't be too long before Coloradas would have equally good cause to take back his undying love of the Americans. While the leader of the Chiricahua Apache was professing his love for the new arrivals, the leaders in Sonora still had to deal with the Apache enmity towards them. Following his scathing letter to the governor, Elias Gonzalez actually wrote to Mexico's Secretary of War to lay out the situation. Incredibly enough, the central government actually did something. The Sonoran military commander suddenly had 11,000 pesos sent to him in March 1849 with a promise of more to come. Elias Gonzalez could now make certain garrisons had full complements and needed horses. Later, the new governor of Sonora, José de Aguilar, informed the commander at Santa Cruz that he had 50 muskets ready to be distributed to that settlement, Tubac and Tucson. I'm not entirely sure what it says about the governor that he still had no idea that no one was actually still stationed at Tubac. In September 1849, we find Yankees encountering men moving to rendezvous with Elias Gonzalez in the area of the Wilcox Playa for a large offensive against the Apache. I don't have a full record of what this force achieved, but we do know that they left the Wilcox Playa to push deeper into Apache territory. And we do know that in mid-October 1849, Elias Gonzalez and his men were in the area of Santa Rita de Cobre, in New Mexico, and managed to kill several Apaches and wounded others. At the same time, a group out of Tucson, mainly comprised of Odom auxiliaries from San Javier del Bac, rode into Aravaipa Canyon in retribution for recent raids on Tucson. This force wound up killing six warriors, five women, and took 12 children as captives. When they returned to Tucson, the Odom held a celebratory scalp dance, something that caught the attention of the Americans and left a very unfavorable impression. One American wrote, quote, The yells and frantic gestures of the performers were truly disgusting and fearful. End quote. Another reported, quote, Screams of the savages as they carried on their diabolical orgies resounded through our camp and prevented many of us from sleeping. End quote. After striking north from Tucson, all routes went north to the Gila and then followed it to the junction with the Colorado to cross over into California. 
The 90 miles distance between Tucson and the Gila was one of the most brutal legs of the entire journey, seeing as there was no good source of water until the river. The Odom and other tribes found along the Gila received near-universal praise from the first Argonauts. One traveler writes, quote, Finding a heathen people so kind, good, sympathetic, simple, honest, and hospitable was indeed a surprise well worth the toil and privation of the trip, and calculated to make Christianity blush for its meager attainments and to revive hope for human utopia. End quote. However, in late 1849, we do start finding descriptions of the Gila River Pima as having um, sticky fingers. One account says a certain company was, quote, perfectly astounded at the amount of goods that they lost while going through Pima villages. Still, they liked them better than the Quechins, who the Yankees thought wily and untrustworthy. We are going to get much more into this next week, but the Quechins were one group vying to swim the 49ers' equipment across the Colorado. However, when it came to getting the mules across, one Yankee wrote that they, quote, would invariably drown a fat one, so as to get the carcass for a feast, end quote. Also, I want to shoehorn in something here that I really couldn't find another place for. Early state historian Thomas Farish reports that in November 1849, a group, including one Mr. Howard and his family, were traveling along the Gila in a flatboat. During this voyage, Mrs. Howard went into labor and delivered a son, and it's this boy who may have claimed to the title first child born in Arizona to American parents. Now, there is no way to verify any of that, but I thought it was interesting enough to pass along. The upside to all this was an economic boom for Tucson. As 1849 goes on, the reports from the Argonauts indicate that more and more food is available for purchase, which is certainly a change from the beginning of today's episode where citizens were literally starving. The Mexican citizens were also eager to buy any goods the Americans didn't want, with the women in particular being singled out as interested in purchasing any jewelry that was to be had. In late 1849, a member of a company that had made it to Tucson noted that the people there had become quite the shrewd traders. He records that sugar and molasses were not available at the Presidio, but corn and wheat were plentiful. The only fruit to be bought were quinces, while the only vegetables were pumpkins and peppers. A consumer could also buy sheep, goats, and mules, which were abundant. Finally, as had become traditional, the Mexicans staged dances for the departing Americans. Truth be told, after a few decades of doom and gloom, things were sounding pretty good for Tucson. Though all was not roses. Gold fever continued to infect a lot of the able-bodied men, who packed up and headed west to California. Also, the Yankees brought with them news of another actual disease that was beginning to strike. Cholera, that plague of frontier towns everywhere, was starting to work its way west and north into Sonora. Many companies had encountered the disease en route. It even caused the breakup of some of them. I will note that this here is the cholera epidemic that found our old friend, and sometimes governor, sometimes revolutionary, José Cosme de Orrea, at his home in Durango 
and killed him in August 1849. And with that one last cloud I managed to find among the silver lining, we are going to leave things here for this week. But join me next week as we dive more into the American presence in Arizona and the fight for control over the vital Colorado River crossing. And, because our humble podcast would not be the same without it, another round of Apache violence descends on Tucson. I'm your host, David Rookhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.